Good morning, beautiful saints of Redeemed South Bay. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 will be our text this morning. And let me encourage those of you who are clock watchers, we will be spending the majority of our time in the introduction and the first point of this sermon. I'm well aware of that, so as time goes on, don't be too worried about point number two. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now I invite you to hear and receive the word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. One more time. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word and the reality of that which we just read. And so we turn to you in this hour and we ask that you would help us to deeply believe the text that is before us this morning. We ask that you would help us to live in light of the text that we just read this morning. Teach us, encourage us, convict us by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word. Be glorified in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I have entitled this sermon, Glory to the All-Powerful God. Glory to the All-Powerful God, which simply states the core idea of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. What we have in these two small verses is the Apostle Paul offering a doxology to God. And a doxology is a liturgical formula of public praise. And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul is simply praising the Lord. And you and I who have been in the church for any length of time, we might say, well, yeah, that's what Christians are supposed to do. We, we praise the Lord. And so sometimes when we're reading through a book, such as the book of Ephesians, and we come to a doxology, we might be tempted to just gloss over it for the more meaty stuff. But do not let these two small verses fool you. These two small verses bear the weight of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Moreover, these two small verses are the launching pad for the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Let me tell you what I mean. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, bear the weight of the first half of the book of Ephesians by how these two verses conclude the preceding sections. This one passage comprised of these two verses really serves as three conclusions to that which goes before it. Let me explain. First, these two verses are the conclusion of Paul's prayer in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Paul had just prayed that God would strengthen the church for a deeper relationship with Christ so that the church might comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. So, in verses 20 and 21, we acknowledge that God is more than able, and we praise him for it. We acknowledge that he is more than able to answer the prayer that the Apostle Paul just prayed, which necessitates his praise. The second conclusion it serves as. Verses 20 and 21 serve as the conclusion to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11, all the way through chapter 3, verse 13. In that section, we see how two distinct groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, have equal footing in the church through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to the establishment of the church, no human... No angel, no demon, not even a dog would ever have thought that, that Jews and Gentiles could function in one body as one man without one party having to either do away with their Jewishness or their Gentileness. However, in Christ, oh, how glorious this is. I wish we could understand in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles are present partakers of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, such that Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ are now members of his body, which is the church. In other words, Christ has done away with the ethnic distinctions, and we are an equal footing in Christ, and this is the glorious reality that had been revealed to Paul and the glorious reality that Paul had proclaimed. This is none other than the reality and revelation of the glorious gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, we acknowledge that God is more than able, which necessitates his praise. No one would have thought that, that a Jew and a Gentile in one body, no, but God is more than able. He can do more than we ask or think. The third conclusion, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, really serves as the conclusion to the entire first half of the book. The first half of the book declares what the triune God has done for his people. God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, the Father chose us. He predestined us according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his 
glorious grace. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 6. In God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in him we have redemption by his blood. In Christ we have been lavished with grace. In Christ we are spiritually united to God. In Christ we have an inheritance so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Chapter 1, verses 7 and 11. God the Spirit has sealed those who believe in Christ, and the Spirit is the guarantee or the down payment such that we have a certain salvation from our great God to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 12 and 13. So, so Paul unpacks for us this, this beautiful gospel, and then that leads him to pray, and that's how chapter 1 ends. But Paul hasn't said enough. So as he ends chapter 1 with a prayer, then in chapter 2, he, he burst into the glory of this great salvation once again. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, those pass that passage reminds us that we who have believed in Christ were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And then that verse that so many of us love, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God, but God has made us alive in Christ. Oh, that's a game changer. Such that we cry aloud with the Apostle Paul for, by grace, you have been saved. Through faith and not a result of works. This is not your own doing so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then, as we have already seen, the rest of chapters 2 and 3 display the unity between Jew and Gentile, which leads to Paul's second prayer. So, in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, we acknowledge that God is more than able, which necessitates his praise. All said, our passage this morning, Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, bears the weight of the first half of Ephesians by serving as a conclusion in the three ways that we just surveyed. But we also must recognize that these two verses are the launching pad for the second half of the book. When we started our sermon series in Ephesians on September 4th of last year, we, we outlined how the book of Ephesians breaks down. You may remember this book is divided into two equal parts. Largely speaking, the first three chapters speaks of who we are in Christ, and largely speaking, the last three chapters speaks of what we do in Christ. Or we could say that the first three chapters are largely indicative, meaning that it indicates a reality. It's telling us the way things are. And the last three chapters are largely imperative. They are commanding us what we are to do on the basis of who we are in Christ. Or one, way, one more way we could think of it. Chapter 3, chapter, the first three chapters declare the truth about who we are in Christ objectively. And the last three chapters declare the truth about who we are and how we are to live, rather, in Christ subjectively. And you may remember we, 
We gave various words. We, we talked about the first three chapters. We can think about our calling. This is who God has called us to be, enabled us to be, made us be in Christ. And then we can think about conduct. So calling and conduct or position and practice. This is who we are. This is the position we have in Christ. And this is how we are to practice or behave. We can think of it in terms of doctrine and duties or orthodoxy, which means right doctrine and orthopraxy, which means right practice. My personal favorite is simply this, the wealth of the church and the walk of the church. You remember that we discussed how, how spiritually rich we are because we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so we are truly wealthy in a way that the world doesn't know. And on the basis of that wealth, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so how does Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 serve as a launching pad for the rest of the book that commands us to live in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, remember, the text says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is able to do more than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. We need to remember that, church, when we are seeking to joyfully submit to all that the Lord has commanded us in chapters 4 through 6. That the one who commands us to live and to behave and to conduct ourselves in a certain way is the one who is at work by his power in us and enables us to do so. And we also need to remember verse 21, to, to God, to God be the glory. We need to remember that when we are seeking to joyfully submit to all that the Lord has commanded us to do in chapters four through six. Why? Because by nature, pre-Christ, we're glory stealers. And we want to conduct ourselves in a way such that you might look upon me and say, bravo, Kenny. No, no, no. It's, it's not to my glory. To him. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and never. We need to remember Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 when we conduct ourselves in the way that we're called to conduct ourselves. And so here we are. I hope that we can see the significance of these two little verses as they pertain to the rest of the book. In a moment, we're going to walk through the main idea of this passage and walk through the text together. But before that, I have a pastoral plea. My prayer for our church this week has been twofold. One, that we would deeply believe the text that is before our eyes this morning. And two, that we would live accordingly. That we would believe deeply the text that is before our eyes and that we would respond accordingly. And let me just say up front, 
Let me address those of you who may not be believing in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no way that you can deeply or even remotely believe the text that is before our eyes this morning. And so I simply and gently want to call you to turn away from your way of life, to turn away from your sin, and to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved. What you must believe before you can believe this text is that God created all things for his glory, that we are his, that he is the Lord of all creation, and that we have rebelled against him, that our first parents chose to refuse his instruction and turn to their own way. Seeking to be like God, they sinned against God, not realizing that they were created in the image of God. And those first parents are Adam and Eve, and all their physical progeny follows in the same way. That we are by nature sinners, and that we choose to sin. So we have a massive problem. A problem that I can't even begin to underscore the reality of. But just as I said earlier, but, but God, but God, righteous and just and holy yet, in upholding his justice and his righteousness, he devises a way that you and I could be right with God. He sends his only begotten son into the world to live in the stead of sinners, to, to live on our behalf, to die on our behalf such that we might have life life abundantly. How does a man dying give us life, you might ask? Death could not hold him. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again, proving to us that he has authority over sin and over Satan and over death itself, such that he has the right to grant to those of us who believe everlasting life. He ascended into heaven and according to scripture, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Turn from your wicked ways and call upon the name of this Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let me talk to you, saints. Those of you who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. We need to believe this text more deeply. We need to pray more faithfully. We need to live more fervently for the Lord. And so, beloved, my plea is this, that you would resolve by the grace of God to hear and to receive and to believe and live in light of the text before our eyes today. Some of you already are. I praise the Lord for that. And my encouragement would be simply this, do so more and more. Some of you are doubting and discouraged because your life's experience is not lining up with what this text says. I would just say, please know and trust that the word of 
God is truth and authoritative. It is the means by which we are conformed into Christ's likeness by the Holy Spirit. And so let me encourage you to believe the word of God this morning over your experiences and to live accordingly. Some of you are, are down because the reality of sin, either the reality of your own sin or the reality of someone else's sin, and such sin persuades you to think that God's hand is too short to offer help regardless of what this text says. However, praise the Lord, he is an ever-present help to his people. Some of you are distant. Some of you are distracted. Some of you are displeased. Some of you are despondent for an array of reasons. My plea my pastoral plea to this precious flock before my eyes is that you would resolve by the grace of God to hear and to receive and to believe and to live in light of the text before our eyes. Because, because the gospel of God is enough. Because God's grace is sufficient. And when we focus our attention on and increase our awareness of the salvation that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus, this great salvation that we've been studying as we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians, then we must respond with praise. And that brings us to the main idea of the sermon. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 shows us two proper responses of praise to the reality and revelation of God's gospel. And those two proper responses are the outline for our sermon this morning. And I've put each proper response in the imperative mood or form so that we all know what we ought to do in light of this text. Acknowledge God's power, ascribe glory to God. Acknowledge God's power, ascribe glory to God. Let us begin in verse 20 with response number one, acknowledge God's power. The text says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. That first word, now in this verse, it serves as an indicator for you and I to realize that there is a transition in who is being addressed. Up to this point, the Apostle Paul is writing to the recipients of the letter, the Ephesians. But now, he's going to turn and he's going to address God in written form. And it says, now to him. In the nearest referent to the pronoun him, we find at the end of verse 19, it is God. And so we know that Paul is addressing God. And the Greek form of that pronoun reveals that Paul is addressing God. And eventually, Paul is going to ascribe something to God. But notice this. Paul does not end up ascribing anything to God until verse 21, when he repeats to him. That is why response number two in our outline is ascribe glory to God. But before 
Paul ascribes anything to God, he first acknowledges something about God. He acknowledges a perfection or an attribute or a characteristic, if you will. Paul acknowledges that the one whom he is addressing is the all-powerful or the omnipotent God. And when we talk about the omnipotence of God, we are talking about his his all-powerfulness. God's perfection of omnipotence is, is God's power to do whatsoever he pleases. In other words, the omnipotence of God refers to God's ability to do anything consistent with his nature and in accordance with his will. And our passage is a wonderful passage that declares God's perfection of power. In verse 20, Paul uses three different Greek terms to refer to God's power. If you were to read this in the Greek, that's the first thing that's going to jump off the page for you, that the power of God is being emphasized in this verse. The first two Greek words, they're cognates, they're related to each other. These words are dunamai and dunamis. You hear anything in that? Dynamite. That's exactly right. This is where we get our English word dynamite. It comes from this terminology. Dunamai means to possess capability. To possess capability. And the term can be translated can or able or capable. And so when we read to him who is able, it's that word able that is being spoken of. The other word is dunamis. And this has a broader semantic range, but generally Speaking, it refers to potential power. It can be translated as power or might or strength or force. And so as we work our way through the text and we get to according to the power, that's that word, dunamis. Let's go back to this concept of dynamite for a second. There is a lot of power, a lot of capability in a stick of dynamite. However... Something has to occur for that potential power to become active. We say that there is potential power, that there's power resident in a stick of dynamite. But if you're like me, growing up watching the Looney Tunes with Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, you'd see a lot of dynamite, but something has to happen for that potential power to be active. I also used to like watch YouTube videos of things exploding as a young man wasting my time. I'm not advocating for you to spend your time doing this. I'm just being honest with you. That there's potential power and that something has to happen for it to be active. And so these Greek words are referring to capability or potential. And so thus far what Paul is is telling us is he's acknowledging the, the potential power, the resident power of God. God is able. He he possesses power. But it is the third term for power that ought to cause us to rejoice. For God's power is more than potential. The final word for power in this text is energeo. And you might hear something there as well. The English word energy is derived from this Greek compound word. And energeo means to put one's capabilities 
into operation. To put one's capabilities into operation. It can be translated as work or activity. And so Paul acknowledges that God is able. Paul acknowledges the potential power of God. But he says, according to the power at work. That's the word. That his power is more than potential, but his power is a working power. Praise the Lord. This verse, it bombards us with the power of God. And based on the emphasis of God's power in this verse, let us ask and answer three questions of our text. Ask and answer three questions of our text. Based on this text, how powerful is God? Based on this text, who is the agent of God's power? And based on this text, where is the power of God active? Question number one, how powerful is God? I love this. I love this. How powerful is God? Well, let me just be up front. We don't have words or thoughts to describe the power that we're trying to describe. So that puts the preacher in a position to fail. Because I can't describe to you guys accurately the power of God. But I can tell you what Paul says about it. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, And one commentator translated the Greek literally in this way. I love this. To the one who is able to do beyond everything, very far in excess of that which we ask or think. There is no stronger way in the Greek language to express God's power than the way in which Paul expresses it in this verse. We understand that. Verbal language is the primary way that people communicate. And we also understand that language is the vehicle by which we express our thoughts. And sometimes we verbally communicate our thoughts very clearly. This is what we call a helpful conversation. That I say what's on my mind and you're understanding it and then you respond to that and I'm understanding that and we're going back and forth. Wonderful. You guys are going to feel this one. Other times, we are at a loss of words to communicate our thoughts clearly. You ever try to communicate a concept and the person that you're talking to, the gloss starts to go over their eyes and they're like, what are you saying? I don't understand. And so we say things like, I just don't have words to express the depth of my thoughts. But catch this. Not only do we not have the words to express the reality of God's power, but we also don't have the thoughts to comprehend the power of God. That's what this verse is telling us. Harold Honer puts it this way. He says, God's ability far surpasses not only what we verbalize in prayer, but also beyond our wildest imaginations. So how powerful is God? 
take a moment, if you will, to imagine supreme power. Go ahead, participate with me. You got it? Good. Multiply that by 100. Got it? Okay, now multiply that by a million and then by infinity. You with me? God is abundantly, exceedingly, infinitely, very far in excess of everything that each of you just thought and all of those thoughts combined. He is the omnipotent God whose power is unmatched and unimaginable. That's my best shot at explaining the power of God. Who is the agent of God's power? Who is the agent of God's power? It says, the one who is able to do exceedingly more than we ask or think is able to do so according to the power at work. And really, verse 16 is going to help us to determine who the agent of God's power is. Remember in Paul's prayer, he prays in verse 16, and he says that according to the riches of his glory, God's glory, that is, he, God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And so the angel of God, or the agent of God's power is personal. It's, it's a who, not a what. He is none other than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The power of God's spirit is working, is what we find out in verse 20. The next question is this, well, where, where is God's power active or working? Oh, be encouraged, saints. Be encouraged. It says within us. It says within us, within those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or verse 16, put it this way, in the inner being of believers. Believers in Christ, that is the church, is the realm or or is the location where God's power is active according to this passage. So let's wrap this all up. The omnipotent God, his power is far beyond that which you can speak of, that which you can think of, he is able to do exceedingly more than we can communicate or grasp. And God uses that power for the benefit of his people. God uses that power for the benefit of his people. Hashtag humbled and encouraged. That, that's really what we should, I mean, what, what do we do with this? I'm weak and I'm frail and I'm sinful and I don't like me very much, but God. But God, he's at work in me. And he's given me everything that I need for life and godliness. His power is active, is operative in his people for their benefit. What a great and glorious God, the spirit of the living God is at work and powerfully so in every, in every true believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, yea, even the church, which is the body of Christ. This is starting to sound familiar. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Remember, this is Paul's first prayer. In verse 18, Paul tells us that he wants the eyes of our heart enlightened, that we may know a few things. And there's three things that Paul wants us to know. Number one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints? And let's focus on number three. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Wow. Paul's already mentioned this. But listen to what Paul does here. Listen to how Paul speaks of this power. Not only does it work in the church, not only is the Spirit active in the church, but look, he says, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, God, put all things under his feet, the Lord Jesus Christ, and gave him as head over all things to who? The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So now what we see is that the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power at work in the body of Christ. Beloved, what a great salvation. This is the power that God puts on display through the gospel. This is the power that God puts on display through the church. How, how does God turn sinners into saints and keep them as such. Because his power is at work within you, saint. How can Jew and Gentile be, be one in, in Christ? Because his power is at work within you, saint. Why should we? Why can we joyfully submit to the commands of Christ because his power is at work within you, saint. How can we walk in unity? How can we walk in holiness? How can we walk in love? How can we walk in the light? How can we walk in wisdom? How in the world can we stand in the midst of spiritual warfare? Because there is one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And his power is at work within you, saint. So, do you acknowledge God's power? That's what Paul does here. He acknowledges the reality that God is at work in his saints. Beloved, acknowledge the glory, the great salvation you have. And part of that glorious salvation is the fact that God is powerful. Acknowledge God's power. And after you do that, then ascribe glory to God. 
That brings us to our second response. Verse 21 says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There are a number of doxologies in the New Testament that speak of Christ bringing glory to the Father. But there is but one doxology in the New Testament that speaks of the church and Christ bringing glory to the Father. And that doxology is before our eyes. Christ has always brought glory to the Father. We learn from John that Christ is the glory of God. However, now we see that the spiritual reality of being in Christ, of being a member of Christ's body, means that the church also brings glory to God. Both Christ and the church ascribe glory to God for who he is and for what he has done. This is Paul's reaction, if you will, Paul's response to to all the the things that he has just taught us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. What a glorious salvation. What what a glorious plan. The triune God is at work causing this plan to come to fruition, and, and we should be in awe and simply respond, giving glory to God. God is glorious, and we honor God by acknowledging his glory and telling him, Exactly what he is. Glory be to you, the glorious one. Praise be to you, the praiseworthy one. And so now we have this unique reality that not only Christ brings glory to the church, rather Christ brings glory to the Father, but the church also brings glory to the Father. It makes sense if we slow down and and think about it. The church, Christ's church, that is, is the masterpiece of God. We've already talked about the saints being the trophies of God such that for all generations, God will look upon us and we will be his trophies. That's what we're going to be up to in eternity. God has saved wretches like you and I. Christ, remember in Matthew chapter 16, he promises that he would build his church And that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And what we've done in studying chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Ephesians is we've seen Christ's faithfulness to uphold that promise that he made while he was here on earth. So of course, glory be to God in the church, for in it the power of God is on display. And of course, glory be to God in Christ Jesus, for by him the church was established and in him the church resides. Again, Harold Holner says it this way, God is to be glorified in the church because his power and splendor are displayed there, and he is glorified in Christ because Christ's work, which pleased the Father, made the church. Ascribe glory to God. For how long? For how long? Is this just something that we do for a couple years? That was nice. I'm going to try something else. Is this just something that's temporary? This is cool now. It helps me to, to live a nice, proper life such that people can look and say, oh, look at that little goody two-shoes. No, this is life and death. 
This is life and death, saints. That the way we live now, if we've been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's eternal reality, an everlasting reality. Why do we mourn? And why do we plead with God when we see our friends and our family members not living under Christ's lordship? Because we know the eternal weight of the gospel. This is life and death. And so we are to ascribe glory to God both now and forevermore is the short of it. Throughout all generations, that phrase seems to suggest and emphasize the present time. In other words, God is to be glorified in the church and in Christ throughout passing generation, from passing generation as the church is an entity that exists upon this earth and surely will not be extinct. But the phrase forever and ever seems to suggest and emphasize the everlasting nature of the church. And I with eternal life in mind and all to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all time on this earth as we now know it and everlastingly in the age to come upon heaven on earth as we will know it. And Paul simply ends with amen. Let it be so. Thus it is. So do you ascribe glory to God? Ascribe glory to God, saints. You are what you are solely on the basis the glorious gospel, the great grace that has been extended to us by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In conclusion, we have seen two proper responses of praise to the reality and the revelation of God's gospel. We must acknowledge God's power and we must, must ascribe glory to God. And my plea was that you would resolve by the grace of God to hear, receive, and live in light of the text that is before our eyes today. And so if you have heard and if you have received and believed the text before our eyes today, then let me offer one resolution for you to live in light of our text. There are many things that we could do to live in light of our text. I simply want to offer one. Saints, I want you to resolve by the grace of God to pray. I want you to resolve by the grace of God to pray. To pray to the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and think. And you pray a blessing upon this church. And you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ to overcome the sin that is discouraging them. You pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their mind and with all their soul and with all their strength. You pray 
through the all-powerful God to do a wonderful work, to continue to do a wonderful work with these precious saints that you see each and every Sunday. And you pray, not only that the power of God would ever increasingly be on display in the midst of our church, but you pray that the love of God would be on display in this church, in our homes, in, in our communities, such that when in the first century context the idea of a Jew and a Gentile getting along in, in one body would have caused the world to scratch his head, that we would get along in such a way that the love of God would be so evident in our midst that the world would scratch their head. What in the world is going on with those people over there at Redeemed South Bay? They believe in some weird stuff, but I've never seen a love exist like I've seen in that group of people. Father, would you bless us? Would you help us to deeply believe that which we studied this morning? And would you help us to live accordingly? You are the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and think. Help us to believe that, Lord. Help us to know that you're for us and not against us, just as we sung before the sermon. Help us to not grow weary in our prayer life. Help us to call upon the name of the Lord and intercede for our families and for our spouses and for our children and for our grandchildren, for our brothers and sisters and for our communities. Lord, help us to be faithful. And Lord, as we turn a corner to the second half of the book of Ephesians, Help us not to lose sight of these two precious verses. As we'll be commanded to live in various ways and as we may be cut to the heart realizing that we fall short, remind us that you're outworking us, that you're for us and not against us and that you've given us what we need to fight the battle. For we trust that you have and will win the war. Be glorified. In our midst, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.